When Gordon, Mike, and I began talking about how we should structure our services on this Christmas Eve, we discussed three goals that we wanted the morning and evening services to achieve. Goal number one, they needed to be short. And all of God's people said, amen. They needed to be short, they needed to be succinct, and they needed to be powerful. Christmas Eve is a busy day. It's filled with family traditions and get-togethers, and we wanted you to come. We wanted it to be worth your while, and we wanted to get you back home to get on with those family traditions and those Christmas plans. That was goal number one. Goal number two, these services needed to be filled with singing. If you come back this evening at 6 o'clock, we're going to have a 45-minute service. You'll notice that we have a set. This is not up here just for decoration. We're going to use this tonight, and we're going to sing. We're going to sing a lot, and we're going to sing the songs that you grew up singing in your family Christmases. So we invite you back this evening at 6 p.m. for our candlelight service. We want to sing at Christmas, the birth of Christ represents the light of salvation shining into the darkness of sin. And that fact, that gospel truth, fills our hearts with such joy that it it just needs to be expressed in worship and adoration and song. So we want to sing. And number three, we need to tell the story of Christ. And we need to tell it well. The birth of Jesus is the most significant event in the history of the world, second perhaps only to the death and resurrection of Christ. In his birth, the eternal Son of God became man, this God-man who spoke the world into existence and sustains all things by the word of his power, was born of infant flesh amidst blood and amniotic fluid. The hosts of heaven celebrated his birth with thunderous anthems of praise, yet the king of kings was born in a stable amidst cattle and sheep and straw and mud. The story of Christmas is spectacular in its contrasts, and yet for many of us, this most mysterious and wondrous event is quickly retold in our family traditions in a monotone drone while the kids gaze longingly at their presence beneath the tree and the parents check their phones. The story of Christmas deserves better. It demands better, and we can do better. So we have three goals today, morning and evening. We want to be short, we want to sing, and we need the story. And so we gather twice on this Lord's Day, Christmas Eve, to lift our ears and our eyes and our voices and to direct our minds and our hearts to the singing and the telling of Christ's birth. And in our songs and in our sermon, we want to capture something of the cosmic, universal significance of this event. And I know of no book in the entire Bible that captures cosmic significance better than the last book, the book of Revelation. Revelation tells the history of the world from creation to the cradle to the cross to the consummation and it does so like a surrealist's graphic novel. It's filled with grotesque and monstrous images and symbolic numbers, all of which are designed to convey truths 
in symbolic form, in visual form. But because of its symbolic nature, Revelation is not an easy book to understand. Our church recently took over a year, 14 months in fact, to unpack its 22 chapters and unfold its mysteries. Now is not the time, if we want to be short, to cover that ground again or to try to explain how we ought to interpret symbolic visions and apocalyptic images. If your interest is piqued or if you want to refresh your memory, all of those sermons are still available in audio and written form on our website. This morning, though, I'm simply going to make some assertions as to the meaning of this text without going into depth or detail as to the interpretive method on how I got there. You're just going to have to take my word for it, or not, but it'll be your loss. This Christmas Eve morning, I want to focus our attention on Revelation chapter 12 as we view the story of Christmas from this cosmic perspective of Revelation. We see that the child born of Mary, of whom we've sung this morning, born in the stable, laid in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes on that Bethlehem night, is none other than the long-awaited serpent crusher of Genesis chapter 3. This baby of Bethlehem is the dragon slayer. He is the one who is destined to rule the nations. My outline this morning is simple. There are three characters that we need to identify if we're to understand this vision. And then once we've understood the vision, I think that we'll find that there are three reasons to rejoice this Christmas. So we cannot begin to understand this strange and mysterious vision until we first identify its three main characters. So we'll begin in verse 1 with the woman. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now who is this woman whom John sees? Well, the woman represents the covenant people of God. Now I use that phrase very, very intentionally because the woman does not represent merely the covenant people of God in the nation of Israel, nor the covenant people of God within the New Testament Church. Rather, the woman of Revelation 12 represents the true people of God of all ages, in every place, in every time. All those who are included in God's one covenant of grace, all those who are justified by God through, through faith, by grace, in the blood of Christ. That's who the woman represents. Adam and Eve who trusted in God's promise of this coming, serpent-crushing Redeemer, are represented by the woman. Abel, who brought to the Lord the blood of a lamb because he recognized his sin and his need for atonement, and because he trusted in God's promise of mercy, is represented by the woman. Noah, who believed God's promise of judgment and by faith prepared and entered into God's ark of salvation, is represented by the woman. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who believed God's promise that he would make of them a great nation who would dwell in God's land, in God's midst forever and ever, they are represented by the woman. Moses and Aaron and Samuel and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of the prophets and the saints of the Old Testament who walked by faith and hoped in their God are represented by the woman. 
Joseph and Mary, who believed God's promise, and the shepherds of Bethlehem, who celebrated Christ's birth, and the wise men from the east, who worshipped the child as a divine king, are represented by the woman. So are Simeon and Anna, who long hoped for the coming Redeemer and lived to see that promise fulfilled. And so are Peter and Andrew and James and John and Paul and Barnabas, who were among the first to trust and to see the crucified and the risen Christ. And so are you and me. If we belong to Christ by faith this morning, we are represented by the woman. We are the one covenant people of God. The faithful Israelite of the Old Testament and the faithful Christian of the New Testament are one people, one covenant people of God, everyone whose name has been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life, in the book of the Lamb who was slain. We are represented by the woman of Revelation chapter 12. And we see that this woman is clothed with the sun because she is clothed with the glory of Christ whose face was like the sun shining in full strength when he appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos in chapter 1 and verse 16. This woman is radiant with the glory of the God who is clothed with splendor and majesty and who covers himself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent, according to Psalm 104. So as the redeemed covenant people of God, she bears the image of her maker and she is clothed with his glory. She is adorned as a radiant bride, which means something if you've read the rest of Revelation, because she is set in stark contrast to the scarlet and tawdry prostitute of Babylon in Revelation chapter 17, who represents the unbelieving people of this world. The book of Revelation represents all of the people who have ever walked the face of this earth by two women, one, the whore of Babylon, and one, the radiant bride of Christ. The image of the moon under her feet points to her dominion in Christ over the forces of evil. The crown of 12 stars points to her royal authority to reign with Christ. The number 12 appearing numerous times throughout Revelation to denote the fullness of the people of God. In other words, the woman of Revelation chapter 12 represents the totality of the radiant and glorified covenant people. Who is this dragon in verse 2? We read, She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So we find that the woman is pregnant. The people of God are pregnant. A child is about to come forth from her. She's in the agony of birth pains. The child which she will bear is the Christ, as we will see in verse 5 in just a moment. 
By drawing the male child and the serpent together in this way, John is telling us, we who have read the Old Testament before, he's, it's like an alarm bell going off. Genesis 3, Genesis 3, Genesis 3. There's a place in Genesis 3.15 where a child and a serpent are drawn together in a very significant passage. And that's what John wants us to have in the back of our mind here. That very first gospel promise in which God swore to Satan and to Adam and to Eve in the aftermath of their terrible sin and in the midst of God's dreadful curse. He said, I will put enmity between you, okay, the serpent, the dragon, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, the offspring of the woman, the child, he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that there would be enmity between the woman and the serpent, the dragon. And that is exactly what we find here in Revelation chapter 12. But God also promised that from that woman would come a Savior, a Redeemer, a Christ who would crush the head of the serpent even as the serpent would strike his heel. This serpent crusher would overcome the serpent through the shedding of his own blood as we'll read in Revelation chapter 12, 11. John wrote in his first epistle, That the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil, to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the serpent-crushing Savior who, Galatians 4.4, was born of woman. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. If you look down at verse 9 of Revelation chapter 12, this great red dragon is explicitly identified as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Once again, you can hear Genesis 3 permeating this passage. The image of the dragon was a familiar one to Old Testament Israel. It's used throughout their scriptures to refer to the evil kingdoms which oppress God's covenant people. This is how Satan, the dragon, attacked the woman throughout history. He raised up and empowered beasts, evil nations like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, and many more on down to today who have brutally persecuted and killed the saints of God. The dragon's seven heads and ten horns denote his power and his authority, which are great, Seven and ten being numbers which John uses repeatedly to convey the idea of completion. But Satan is a counterfeit. He presumptuously strives for that authority which belongs to Christ alone. And as we will find in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus also has many diadems upon his head, yet he alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. And as John watches, this great red dragon takes with his tail and he sweeps a third of the stars of heaven and he casts them to the earth. This is an allusion to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 10 in which the little horn, who in that vision stands for Antiochus Epiphanes, one of those wicked rulers whom Satan raised up to persecute and to kill the saints of God. This little horn throws down some of the stars of heaven and he tramples upon them. The stars of heaven in the book of Daniel refer to the saints and they refer to the saints in Revelation chapter 12. So what's 
symbolically being pictured here when the dragon sweeps a third of the stars to the earth is the trampling of God's people throughout the Old Testament in the vain attempt to stamp out the Messiah and destroy him before he comes while he's still in the woman's womb, so to speak. One has only to look at Old Testament history, in particular intertestamental history between Malachi and Matthew, and you will find story after story of horrific persecution by beastly rulers intent on destroying the people of God. Why? Why do they hate Israel so much? Because from the woman will come the male child who is destined to rule the nations and to destroy the dragon. Satan was trying to stamp out the promised seed. But he could not. Finally, when the woman was about to give birth, the dragon stood before her ready to devour the Messiah as soon as he appeared. Can't you hear Herod's slaughter of the innocents of Bethlehem in that verse? Or the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? Or the constant opposition and hostility which Jesus encountered everywhere he went? Or when Satan actually entered into Judas Iscariot and used him to set in motion the murder of Christ? To the very moment of Jesus' death upon the cross, Satan was trying to devour this promised seed of the woman before the seed could crush the serpent's head. But even with all of his hideous strength and his malicious cunning, Satan could not overthrow the sovereign purpose of God. This child would be born. And he would overthrow Satan and all of his regime, and he would crush the serpent's head. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Satan was unable to prevent the Messiah's birth, and he was unable to, to stop the Messiah's triumph. Why? Verse 5 tells us because this child is destined to rule the nations, which is a quotation from Psalm 2.9. The King, the Redeemer, the Christ was born, and he was triumphant. How? It's not stated here in verses 5 and 6. It is implied in verse 11, and it is shouted in Revelation chapter 5. The child, before he reigns as a lion, he dies as a lamb. He overcame them by his blood. Hebrews chapter 2 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's your gospel this morning. By death... The child destroyed him who has the power of death and has set us free from our lifelong bondage to sin and to Satan. 
The very place of Satan's apparent victory, the cross, became the place of his ultimate defeat. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan was crushed by the triumphant death of the seed of the woman who is the Son of God. Jesus then was raised up in power. He was caught up to his throne at the right hand of the Father where he will reign until he has put all of his enemies beneath his feet and all the nations belong to him and he rules over them as he was destined to do from the very beginning. Now we're going to return to verses 7 to 12, but for right now, the vision picks up again in verse 13. So run your eyes down the page. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away like a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood upon the sand of the sea, which transitions into chapter 13. For from that sea will come a beast. But that's for another time. The woman, the covenant people of God, after the birth, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the child, has fled into the wilderness of this world where, like Israel in the days of the Exodus, she is preserved and protected and nourished by God for 1260 days. Verse 6 or for time and times and half a time, verse 14. That's a time frame that throughout the book of Revelation, sometimes it's 1,260 days, sometimes it's 42 months, sometimes it's three and a half years, sometimes it's time, times, and half a time. In every case, it refers to this age, this present age between the first coming and the second comings of Christ. During this age, we, the woman, are in the wilderness of this world, preserved and protected by the power of God, nourished by His Word until such a time when Christ shall return to judge the living and the dead. During this age, God will protect and preserve His people in faith, nourishing them on His Word, even while Satan is spewing out lies like deception from a river out of his mouth and persecutes us in His fury and His great wrath. So what we have in Revelation chapter 12 is a grand, sweeping, cosmic vision which pictures both Christmas and the cross from this cosmic perspective. The birth of the child and the death and resurrection of the Lamb stand at the center of all of history. All of creation, all of time, all of history centers upon this conflict between the woman and the dragon and the triumph of Christ who is the Lamb. This is what gives Christmas its extraordinary meaning and significance. All of our Christmas traditions and all of our celebrations that we will go to after this service concludes, they find their significance in light of this story or they have no lasting significance at all. 
So my aim this morning is to give you this eternal cosmic significance, this perspective on Christmas, and then to send you out to go sing your songs and open your gifts and share your meals in the light of this perspective. Christ has come. He has died. He has risen. And He reigns. So let me mention three reasons to rejoice as we conclude this service. Three reasons to rejoice this Christmas that emerge from this vision of Revelation chapter 12. Reason to rejoice, number one, the child has come. The one destined to destroy the dragon, to crush the head of the serpent and to rule the nations, has been born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, born of the woman. And this child is both God and man. As Charles Wesley wrote in his famous Christmas hymn, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Our Redeemer laid aside His divine glory, stepped into time and into history and into the suffering and the misery of mankind. Like a warrior king who sets foot on occupied enemy territory and does so intent to conquer, so Jesus the Son of God set foot upon this earth, yet He did so in the form of a tiny, fragile infant. It is astounding, this seven Eight-pound baby created and sustained the universe by the word of his power. This newborn wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in his mother's arm who could not survive a day without her nourishment and her care and her warmth is destined to slay the dragon, to crush the serpent, and to rule the nations with a rod of iron. You remember that tonight when we sing Silent Night. The child has come. Reason to rejoice, number two, the child has conquered. We should rejoice knowing that Jesus has conquered. And we should rejoice knowing that because right now, we, the woman, are in the wilderness of this world under constant assault from a defeated dragon. This newborn infant triumphed in the most unusual and unexpected way. When I read the promise of Genesis 3.15, I expect a warrior king to emerge from the woman. I expect a lion. And you know what comes forth? A lamb. I expect a lion who devours the serpent with his ferocious strength, but before the child becomes a lion, he became a lamb. Before he conquers as a lion, he dies as a lamb. The child became for his people a sacrificial lamb who died for the atonement of their sins and to pay a ransom for God with his blood. This death is what broke the back of the dragon and this is how that ancient serpent was thrown down. The power which the dragon held over us was the power of sin. And when Christ died for sins, he rendered the dragon powerless. He stripped him of his authority. The Apostle John saw this reality in the vision of Revelation chapter 5 when he was weeping because there was no one found worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to unfurl the history of the world, the destiny of the human race. John heard a voice saying, weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. John's weeping because no one's worthy to unfurl the destiny of the world. And he hears a voice say, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he turns around and he sees a bloody lamb. That's how the child has conquered. This lamb was standing as though it had been slain. And he hears a new song breaking forth in praise. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign upon the earth. The dying of the child of, as a lamb. And his rising again as a lion. And his conquest over the dragon. Is pictured graphically and symbolically. In verses 7 to 10 of Revelation chapter 12. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. And the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That is reason to rejoice this Christmas. The child has come and he has conquered by dying as a lamb and he has risen and reigns as a roaring lion and he has been caught up to God to sit upon his glorious throne and to rule over the nations. But there's one more reason to rejoice in this text and it's found in verse 11. The child has come the child has conquered, and because of that, the children conquer as well. The children of the woman, verse 17, are one with the woman. The woman represents the covenant people of God understood corporately. The children represent the covenant people of God understood individually. These are the brothers of verse 10 against whom Satan made his ceaseless accusations before God. These are the Christians, and we find in verse 11 that they have conquered as well. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Here's how it works. When Christ, the Lamb of God, died to make atonement for the sins of the children, the accusations of Satan no longer have any merit. Not because they're not true, but because the penalty for sin has already been paid. Who shall bring a charge against one of God's elect? one of God's children, one of the brothers. It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn Christ Jesus, the child, the lamb? Is he who has died, yet has risen again, 
and has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives always to make intercession for us. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down and the children have conquered. How? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they love Christ more than they love life. Let that be your hope and your joy this Christmas. Let that be the word of your testimony before your family and your friends. The child has come, the child has conquered, and because of him, the children conquer as well. I want you to take this, I want you to understand it, I want you to put it deep within your heart and your soul this morning. If you trust in Christ, if you are one of the children, the accuser of the brethren who torments your conscience day and night has been thrown down and you are not condemned. Your sins have been cleansed. Your guilt has been remitted. And one day when Christ returns, when this baby who died as a lamb, who rose as a lion, who reigns as a king, and who will return one day as a warrior, when he comes back, he will reign and you will reign with him. That's the story of Christmas. Have you conquered? You can. By the blood of the Lamb, believe it, receive it, trust it, hope in it. By the word of our testimony, speak it. And by loving Jesus more than you love your own life.